Thanks for tuning into the ES First podcast. We'd love to connect with you on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. So take a minute to hop on over and give us a like or a follow. And of course, if you're ever in Excelsior Springs, stop on by. We can't wait to welcome you home. Welcome to ES First. We're glad you're here, whether it's your first time or your 5,000th time, you're welcome here and we're glad. We preach through books of the Bible here right now. We're in the book of John, which is it's a story, it's a narrative of Jesus' life. There's four of them in the Bible, and it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell much of the same story from different angles, the same basic narrative. John begins to talk about who Jesus is, not so much about what he did, even though he includes those stories, but in it he is interweaving who Jesus is from the aspect of God. He starts off his, his book talking about how God in the beginning created, and then he says basically that Jesus, the word of God, was with God there creating, and everything that was created was created through him. And the Bible says that what happened is that he became the word, Jesus Christ became flesh, and dwelt among us. And then he begins to talk about Jesus's life from that perspective. We've been on this journey for a few weeks. We're only in chapter one. I think I can't guarantee how fast or how slow, but we're going to try to keep moving. So the book of John, if you miss those, they'll be on the podcast soon and you can catch up. But if you're just getting here and getting into this, it's a good time because we're just starting to talk about the good stuff about Jesus. So the book of John, clear at the end, John says, I have written this book so that you might believe in Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, and that you may have life. That's the purpose of this book. I believe that Jesus came for two different reasons. First of all, to reveal who God is. And the Bible tells us that a bunch of different times. As a matter of fact, in John, it says that nobody's actually ever seen God except for Jesus. And he has made him known to us. In other words, Jesus came to show you what God would be like. In our society, everybody wants to know about deity. They want to know about God. They want to know about the supernatural. And what, is there anything out there? And if I could know God, and people come with all different things. Well, if you want to know God, go look at your children. If you want to go God, look at the eyes of, of an old woman sitting on the side of the corner. Like they have all of these things that say, if you want to find God, if you want to find God. And I'm here to tell you that if you want to see and know and find God, you have to look at Jesus first. And if you find Jesus, then you'll see God in everything. Okay? So John says that Jesus is the only one who's seen God face to face and that he has revealed him unto us. And then Jesus comes for three years. And I, if he's coming to save the world and die for sins and raise again, which is the Easter story, if that's his purpose, why did he spend three years walking around meeting people and developing relationships and performing miracles? Why would he do that? It seemed like, you know, like for me, if I'm God sitting on the throne, and I have to go on a vacation for 30 years where I become a baby, learn how to be potty trained, learn how to eat, go back to school. Come on, somebody. We'll go through all that. Go through adolescence. Hello. If I have to do all of that, I just be like, hey, God, can we just go down? I'll die for everybody. And then we'll go back. And I'll come back here to heaven. It'll be awesome. It'll be an amazing thing. Party with Larry Block. It'll be amazing. But he didn't do that. What he did is he came down and lived 33 years on the earth. Why? Not only show us who God was, but to reveal what life with God could be like. And so that's what he's showing us is what is life like 
when you are with God. Because in the Old Testament, there's all these different blurry, God is constantly trying to tell, this is who I am, this is what I'm like, this is who I am. And they don't believe it. They're like going through all these different emotional flips and God wants to kill me and God wants to save me and God's good and we want to not serve God anymore. We want to go back to this. You know, they're back and forth. And I think that God had to have a concrete revelation of his heart, his nature, what he was like, what he desired for humanity. And so he said, Jesus, why don't you go down there and tell them what I'm like? Why don't you show them what I'm like? All the way to dying on a cross for people who were undeserving, unappreciative, didn't even realize what was happening. And as we see it in hindsight, it becomes more and more clear to us that Jesus was willing to reveal God by giving his life 100% to the people he created. That blows my mind. Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. Hare Krishna didn't do that. Any other deity did not do that. As a matter of fact, they would all say, they would go through and tell you everything. And it's like the end of their book, the end of life. They're like, I don't know though. And Jesus gets then in his life. He says, look, there's no other way but me. If you want to get to the father, come to me. So the book of John is us looking into this relationship and what it can mean for your life. Are you ready to look at the word of God today? Chapter one and verse 43. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. Finding Philip, he said to him, follow me. Sound familiar? Philip, like Andrew and Peter, was from the town of Bethsaida. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about him the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nathanael asked. Come and see, said Philip. When Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said to him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit or guile. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Jesus answered, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called to you. Then Nathanael declared, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You will see greater things than that. Then he added, very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the word of God. It's unlike any other piece of information that we can receive. Lots of things can change our life. They could be news reports. They could be things that happen in our life. They change our, our moments, our day-to-day. But very few things change us from the inside out. I pray that your word today would change us supernaturally, that we would see a difference in who we are, how we live, how we walk, how we interact with each other, and what we believe about you. Let this word be real to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I grew up going to camp, and this is back before cell phones and Snapchat and all that stuff. So you really look forward to meeting new people that were from different places. You'd go to camp, and you would meet new friends, and you figured out which of your friends were from what church, and then you started hanging out with them. And all of a sudden, somebody from opposite sex would come rolling through, and you'd be like, hey, 
What church do you go to? And it was like a week-long version of The Bachelor, except for we were all bachelors, you know. And we were there for the Lord, you know what I mean? We were there to see what the Lord had for us in the girl across the state, you know what I mean? Like, is this the person I'm supposed to marry? And God's like, you're 12, give it a rest. But it was a very exciting time in life, you know. You would go there and meet somebody and you get your eye on somebody from Monday and Tuesday would come and you're hoping that maybe a friend would introduce you. By Wednesday, you finally came up to him, maybe in the altar, you know, and you prayed for him. Can we pray together? And if you pray with somebody, you have a bond that you just can't ever break. And so, you know, it's like, hallelujah, thank God for you and my friends in this room and Lord, just lead us and guide us into our futures, you know, and creates a very unhealthy culture of relationships. But you get to know other Jesus people and, and you develop these relationships. And so you would, at the end of the week, you maybe you hooked up on Wednesday or Thursday and they had a banquet and you would dress up and you asked somebody to be your date for the banquet. This is so crazy that this happened at church camp, but it's what we did. And then Friday by noon, they're hopping on a bus or in a van and they're heading back to wherever they're from. If you did the right thing, then you got their address and their phone number, which meant you could go back home. You could live out your summers. You could be a pen pal. You could write them letters, you know? So what do your parents do? And, and you know, like you start like writing all this stuff out and then you call them from time to time, but after seven, you know what I mean? Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. Amen. Right. And if you develop this relationship, what would happen is later on in the summer, we had this place called Adventureland. Okay. Adventureland was kind of like worlds of fun, only the Iowa version. So more wholesome, better food, better corn dogs and lemonade, smaller, but however, a great time. And so all the churches, it was kind of like camp, they would all come to Adventureland Day. And so you would call your pen pal, you know, after seven and ask them, are you going to Adventureland tomorrow? And if they said the one word, it's not a verb, it's not a noun, it's just a special word that means so much to your soul. It is this, yes. Your insides flipped out and then you could not sleep all night long thinking about everything that would happen at Adventureland. Because I mean, back in June, you told the Lord you were going to marry this person. You received the gift of God into your life and now you're at Adventureland. And so what happens is your expectation starts to get up and you're thinking all night long about what tomorrow will be like when you show up and you meet this person. You start having all of these things run through your mind. So all night long, you're thinking, what's going to happen? What's it going to be like when I see her for the first time? What are we going to do? What are you gonna, riding on this roller coaster and she's going to get freaked out. And, uh, and I'm going to be like, it's okay, baby. I got you right here. And you're holding her hand. And, you know, all, all the things you think, every, you're just running through every scenario because you have these expectations of what is going to happen. Anybody else like this? Maybe not Adventureland, but you just, you know, you got the expectations, right? And you're thinking everything in your life is starting to come to your mind, every experience you've had, and, and you have these expectations that come from movies, you know, maybe it's Gone with the Wind, or maybe it's, you know, you watch too much of The Notebook and you have these ideas of how love is supposed to happen. Or you have like, you know, expectations of how it happened last time and you saw her and she said this and then you said this and everything was vibing on a certain way. And then you're face to face and nothing goes the way that you planned. Nothing goes to expectation, right? As a matter of fact, you get to the end of the night and you're going to kiss this girl and she's got to leave and, and we're on the Ferris wheel and all your friends jump in the same gondola as you. And you're like, hey guys, get out of here, right? 
You know, like you're walking through and you're holding her hand and then all of a sudden she wants a funnel cake and then her hands are sticky. She's like, I don't want to hold your hand. My hands are sticky. You know, like whatever that is, like nothing goes the way that you expected it to. But all of our lives are wrapped up in expectation. We expect our kids to go a certain way and and to be raised a certain way. And they even have a book like what to expect when you're expecting, like as if that can tell you anything that's going to happen in the next few years. And everything is an expectation and we're fed all of this information about what our lives are supposed to be like. When you're getting married and you expect one thing and even go to things like pre-marriage counseling and they say, hey, you need to do this and this. And if you do these things, your life will go well. They didn't tell you to look out for the salsa jar that's going to be flying across the kitchen when you didn't do what you said you were supposed to do. You know what I mean? Expectation creates an ideal that doesn't necessarily exist, and it's always based on your perception or your experience of life. Well, that's not the way it was in my house. That's not the way it was when I was growing up. That's not the way it was when I was imagining and thinking, because it's based on your experience. Expectation is a weird thing. And we're fed so many expectations that we're lost in this whirlwind of life. And Jesus is walking around and he's doing all of this stuff as the son of God. And people are experiencing him. Andrew and Peter and James and John. And here we have Philip experiences Jesus. And he's so compelled by this Jesus guy that he goes and he finds his brother Nathaniel. He finds him and he says, hey, you need to come and check out this Jesus. We found the Messiah. Now the word Messiah is so loaded that everybody has an idea about what the Messiah should be like. The Pharisees had a hard time following after Jesus because they expected the Messiah, the chosen one from God, thousands of years of expectation. Their parents tell them, their grandparents tell them, the priests tell them. Everybody's thinking about the day when this Messiah will come and save the Jews. And they're living like in oppression. They're living Roman times, some of the most evil times of all of history. And all of this stuff is going on. And they're thinking somebody's going to come and establish God's reign and everything will be right in the world again. That's what the word Messiah means. It means that everything is going to be just the way I imagined it. God is going to be good to us. It's going to be wonderful and perfect and without pain and will finally be delivered. And so he says, hey, we found the Messiah. And Nathaniel comes and he's like, he hears this piece of information. He's like, we found the Messiah. He's from Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathaniel says, wait a second, something's not computing because we're supposed to have a king. He's supposed to sit on the throne like David. The history says that the Messiah would come from the lineage of David, the greatest dynasty that Solomon took over and built the temple. And all of this is such wonderful things. It's like, And here we have this dirty carpenter from Nazareth. Nazareth was such a, a little speck on the map that nobody even cared about it much, except for that Jesus was from there. And we talk about it because Jesus is from there. Nobody else thought it was anything to even talk or to write home about. And so he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? 
It's so interesting that that's in the Bible. He didn't have to say that and nobody had to record it, but they made it a point to say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from, and you just name it. Somebody says, they're going to be the president of the United States. Where did they come from? What's their experience? What's their life like? And when we have these moments where we can size up, they came from nothing to something. There's a process. And here's Jesus. He's from Nazareth. And Nazareth is not that far from Galilee. They're hanging out in Galilee. As a matter of fact, they're in Bethsaida. And Bethsaida is just this town. It's just like a mile, mile and a half north of Galilee where all of these guys are hanging out. They're kind of like have this big industrious life. And I can imagine they talk a lot about Nazareth, this place where nothing good comes from. And Nathaniel says, I don't know. I have an expectation of a Messiah and it's not Nazareth. And so he comes and sees Jesus and Jesus sees him coming and he calls him out. Look at this guy. That's Nathaniel right there. There I found an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. He just starts speaking highly of this guy and he comes up. He's like, how do you know me, Mr. Nazarite? And he says, I actually saw you underneath the tree when Philip called you and said, come and see this Jesus guy. And Here's how powerful that piece of information was. Nathaniel went from nothing good can come from Nazareth to you are the son of God, the Messiah, in one sentence. Why? It sounds like maybe just Jesus is walking around and he's like, hey, yeah, I've seen you before. I've seen you around. You were at the fig tree, right? Like two weeks ago, whatever. But actually what's happening is Jesus is in one area. And when Philip calls Nathaniel, he's underneath the tree in a completely different town. And Jesus begins for the first time that we see in Scripture operating with the power and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He begins to prophesy. First, he says, Nathaniel, I see you. I know your character and I've never even met you. You're a person that there's no deceit in. That's pretty crazy. If you want to get super deep, he says you're an Israelite. And Israel is the name that comes from Jacob and the name Jacob means deceiver. In other words, people of Jacob are deceivers and they became Israelites. He says, I see you, you're an Israelite and there's no deceit in you. He starts to prophesy to who he is and then he says, how do you know me? He says, I saw you underneath the fig tree. You were just chilling out, reading some scriptures, sipping on some lemonade. And he's like, OMG, this guy is operating on a different level. All of a sudden his expectation changed. And what they expected was a prophet. They expected somebody who would do miracles. And, and everybody, you know, as they start to like identify him as the Messiah, everybody brings to Jesus their expectation of who he is. Heal me. Can you do something about my dead daughter? And they operate in this level of expectation of what they thought the Messiah would be. And all the while they're operating at their level expectation, Jesus is doing something incredibly different. He's actually coming to bring you a greater level of God's presence in your life, which includes signs, wonders, and miracles. But what he's coming to do is to save you, to deliver you, to restore you into right relationship with God. And nobody can see that because they have a level of expectation. And Jesus is like, hey, it's not that. 
So he is doing something incredible with the power of the Holy Spirit. He's prophesying to him, word of knowledge. He knows things that people can know no other way unless it's God. And he says, you're impressed because I can tell you about where you were sitting? You're impressed with a miracle? You're impressed with God moving in some kind of Holy Spirit fashion? He says, stick around. He's like, you haven't seen anything yet. As a matter of fact, what you are going to see is you're going to see heaven open up and you are going to see angels ascending and descending on me, the son of man. And I think everybody was like, that's weird. For us, it seems weird because it seems like maybe Jesus is bragging, but he wasn't bragging. What he was actually doing, like Jesus does most of the time, is using loaded language. He uses phrases and pictures that only people who understand the culture can get. And for us, unless you know Jewish culture, you don't know what Jesus is saying. You just think, that's cool. Angels ascending and descending. And so today I want to take you on a bit of a journey before we get to the end. Okay, I'm going to try my best to explain all of the Bible to you in the next 10 minutes. Jesus says, stick around. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, in the Old Testament, we have Adam and Eve, and they have, you know, we have Noah. We have all of these things that happen in Genesis. And then it comes to Abraham. Abraham is the first Jew. He is the father of all of us spiritually. He is a father physically of all Jews, and some would argue that he is also the father of all Muslims. Pretty crazy, kind of deep, but this is what's happening. Abraham has two children. He has Ishmael and Isaac. Isaac is the child of promise. Ishmael is his own version of how to get to God. And from one comes the Jewish race, and one comes the Arab race. And so Abraham, Isaac, Isaac has two sons, Jacob and Esau. Jacob and Esau are twins. One is strong and powerful. His name is Esau. Comes out very hairy and very manly. Okay. And they're twins, but the Bible says that another child comes out of the womb. And it says that he's clutching Esau's heel. He is weak and sickly and small. And he spends most of his time not doing manly things like out hunting and grabbing sharks and shooting deer. He spends most of the time in the house, in the tent with his mother. He learns how to cook. He learns how to take care of the house. He learns how to serve his father and to serve his brother. As a matter of fact, Esau comes back one time from hunting and he's just all turned up. He's like, man, I'm hungry. I'm so hungry. I can eat up, you know, and he just names whatever he, you know, ostrich. And, uh, and he says, could you make me some soup to Jacob? And Jacob says, he sees his opportunity and he says, yeah, I can make you some soup, but you got to trade me your birthright for it. Esau, who's not very smart, says, he says to him, I'll trade you for your birthright. And Esau is like, heck yeah, bro. He trades his whole inheritance, millions of dollars in our money today, his future for a bowl of soup. Okay. So what happens is Esau moves from being the chosen son, the, the one who is going to inherit everything, and Jacob becomes 
the one who's going to get the birthright. He actually deceives his dad into blessing him with prayer. It's like the whole thing. He does it completely legally. And Esau comes in. He's like, what about me? And Isaac goes, it's too late. I already gave away the blessing. That's how powerful what you say and what you bless is in your life. And so what happens is then Jacob is now in the lineage. And we have Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When people pray, they say, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. When I was in Israel and you hear Jews pray, you hear them say, to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jacob is living his life and he has some hard times and he, he goes out there and, and lives his life. But through this process, what happens is, is Jacob has an encounter with God and he is out in the middle of nowhere. He's in the desert. He's in the place that we would call around Jerusalem, right? He's in Israel, but he's in that part. We've gone through Noah and the flood. We got Abraham. We have not yet gotten to Moses and the Egyptians and the Israelites. But here's this process that happens. Jacob is traveling and he lays down for a night's sleep on a rock. My Sunday school brain is like, how do you sleep on a rock? I still baffled about how you sleep on a rock. Sometimes I'm out in the wild and I think I could just lay right down here on this rock and have a nap because Jacob did it. And this is what happens. Jacob left Beersheba and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, hallelujah, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. He had a dream in which he saw a stairway. Resting on earth with its top reaching heaven and the angels of God were ascending and descending. Mm. There above it stood the Lord and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are living. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and the north and the south. All peoples on the earth be blessed through you and your offspring. I am with you and I will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place and I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. I want you to think about that. This is the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. He goes on to name this place Bethel. Now, in Jewish, I was explaining to somebody this week about how bar means from or of the family of. So when you have like Simon bar Jonah, it means of Jonah, the son of Jonah. We have Barabbas. Give us Barabbas in the Easter story. It's bar Abba, which means that Barabbas was the son of God is what his name actually means. That's crazy, isn't it? And so these words, we see them as names, but they're actually descriptions. And so when Jacob, he has this dream and angels are going up and down into this one particular area. He goes, this is an amazing place. He says, I will name it Beth El. Beth is not that girl you grew up in seventh hour who is annoying and talk too much. Beth actually means house. El 
is the two words that mean God. We get our names Elohim from this. You've heard this before? It was the name that they had for God, El. And then we have the names of God, we have El Shaddai, the God who is all-powerful, whom nothing is too hard, El Shaddai, right? And so we have names in Jewish culture like Beth Seda, where all these disciples are from. That means house of fish. Bethsaida, we have places like Bethesda, the pool of Bethesda, which means house of mercy. You might have heard of this one here, Bethlehem. Bethlehem is house of bread. So Jacob names this place in Jerusalem, just north of Jerusalem, about 10 miles or so. He names it house of God because God lives there lives there. Can you imagine what it'd be like to come to a place where you go, God lives here. And it was in the middle of nowhere. It's in the middle of a desert, right? It'd be like going through the desert and being like, here would be a great place for a casino. Let's call it Las Vegas. Only you're like, here'd be a great place for the house of God. God lives here. But it wasn't because he had an idea. It was because God revealed to him his nature of ascending and descending and open heaven over his people where he would interact. So fast forward to Moses's in Egypt, and he has this story, you know, let my people go. And we probably are familiar with the Ten Commandments and Israelites leaving Egypt. Hundreds of years after Jacob, they actually go out and they wander around in the wilderness for 40 years. It wasn't God's fault. It was their fault. It wasn't because they complained or sinned too much. It was because God said, you can do this if you just go and try. And they said, we cannot. And so God said, fine, then you cannot. Let that be a lesson to you about what you tell God. Could cost you 40 years of wandering in a tent. So Moses is out leading his people, probably a million, around a million Israelites in the desert. They're traveling around and they have tents that they put up. And God gives Moses these instructions. He says, this is how I want you to worship me. This is how I can interact with my people. And he sets up this place called the tabernacle. It's like this fence and you go in and you make sacrifice. There's this tent, this room. And that's the place It's called the Holy of Holies. You'll put the Ark of the Covenant there. So if Indiana Jones is looking for it, it's there in that tent. And you would walk in, it was holy and it was special. It was so special that you had to prepare yourself all year long to be sinless to go in there. And if you were not sinless, you would die. The priests would have things like bells on their robe. So that way they would keep ringing them like, I'm alive in here, guys. I'm alive in here, guys. Because if you went into the Holy of Holies and you took all year long to prepare yourself and you went in and you were not good enough, then Pastor Joseph outside is not going to come in and see if he's holy enough. And they would either take a hook or they would take a rope and they would pull the body out of the Holy of Holies, where God's presence was. This was signified by either a cloud or fire. The Bible says that they were led around in the desert to know where to go by a cloud in the day and fire by night. And this is the idea that God's heaven would open up and his glory would interact with the people. The priest would go in and hear from God and they would 
come out and have a word, what God said for his people. Moses would go and interact on the mountain with this type of glory and God would speak to him. And the Bible says that his face would change and then it would wear off. I've talked about this in a few weeks ago about how the Holy Spirit would come on people and then leave. And so when John the Baptist says, Jesus is the first one on whom the Holy Spirit will come on and stay, remain, remain. This is the picture of what they're talking about. Not just like little goosebumps, like, oh, I feel so good today. Holy Spirit, you're welcome here. I sang the song. It feels so good. We're going to church today. Go home. I'm going to have my three-minute devotion. That, that kind of Holy Spirit, this kind. Glory of God. So we have moving from this tent thing. David wants to have a concrete place where God's presence can, he says, I want to build a house for God. And he gathers all the material. He gathers all the people, all of the resources, but God won't let him build it. He says, no, you can't build it. Your son Solomon is going to build it. And they build this huge temple that's just like that. It's an outdoor uh, you know, fence kind of thing where you would go in and it's the outer court and the inner court and the holy of holies. And you would go into the holy, holy. Now it's concrete and they have a big curtain and you cannot go past that curtain because if you do, it is curtains for you. That's how they got that. I, I actually don't know where that came from, but that curtain thing is true. And so they have this concrete place where they would go and interact. Towards the end of the Old Testament, the Assyrians and the Babylonians come and they ransack this temple and run it over. Okay, so where God would come and dwell, his spirit, his fire, his cloud. And the Bible says that he removed his presence from the temple because of his people's sin and disobedience. In probably 600 years, they had no glory. They had no presence. They were people left without God. We have Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. All of these stories in the later part of the Old Testament are all of them interacting with a Babylonian system without their presence. And then towards the New Testament, this guy named Herod, he builds the second temple. He repeats it. He was a politician and he wanted to be liked and loved. And so he created a place for God's people to worship. That is the place when you go to Israel, you're going to see the structure of this Herodian temple that's left. It got ransacked again in 70 AD. The walls that are standing, the wailing wall where Jews go and pray, we've seen this and they stand there and they rock back and forth and you got the Jews. And, and there's guys that, that their whole job is to pray day and night, 24 seven prayer constantly before God. Can you imagine this? They're praying for the glory of God to come. They want the glory of God to come back. They want their temple to be back. The problem is Jesus has already established this principle. He was walking around the middle of the desert. Nothing good comes from Nazareth kind of place. And he goes, hey, I've seen you before. And like, oh, you've seen me before? How do you know? What high school did you go to? Hey, yeah, where do you buy coffee at? He's like, no, I saw you under a fig tree about 30 minutes ago in my mind. As a matter of fact, I know your character and your nature. He starts to do these Holy Spirit things because what's happening is that glory that used to come and speak 
to specific people who would prepare all year long. The glory that would come and speak through prophets and then leave is now on Jesus. That powerful presence of God that transforms life, that changes situations, that heals and delivers, that takes anxiety and drives it away, that takes depression and makes joy. The city of our God is now on Jesus. And what he is saying, he says, look, if you stick around, I'm going to show you some cooler things than that. Because their expectation is signs and wonders and miracles. And he says, no, the expectation is not signs, wonders and miracles. The expectation is that the heavens would open up and God would pour on you everything he has for you because he loves you that much. And I'm here to show you that. So in one sentence, he told you everything I just told you with this one statement. Stick around. You'll see the heavens open up and angels ascending and descending on me. And all of a sudden, their hearts change, their lives change, and they give everything to follow this guy, no matter where he's from, no matter what he looks like, because they want to see God. Interesting thing is that Jesus is the first one that the presence of God dwells in because he's sinless. He doesn't have to prepare himself for a year. He doesn't have to walk back behind the curtain. He is sinless. He's the first one who paves the way for you and I to have this interaction. I told you two weeks ago that the Holy Spirit came and remained on Jesus. And now the Bible says later on, I believe it's in Peter. He says that the Holy Spirit remains on Jesus you. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 3, 16, I think you should go through the Bible and read all the three 16s and finally they say, I think it was kind of a cool that my brain works weird like that. But this is one of my favorite ones. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? Jesus is the first one because, as I said today, in John 1, 14, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt in the Hebrew is actually this word, tabernacle. That the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. It's the same word in the Old Testament. I want you to build a tabernacle where the presence of God will come in. And now Jesus becomes flesh and the word becomes flesh and he tabernacled among us. He is the tent. And in the New Testament, because it's in Greek, we don't have the same thing because we went from tents, tabernacle, to Solomon's temple and then Herod's temple and everywhere in the new testament when he wants to bring up this idea that god's presence comes down what he wants to tell you is that you are the temple of the holy spirit and all my life i was kind of taught that verse about two different things number one don't do bad stuff because you're a temple and number two don't get fat because your body's a temple. Both of which are terrible expectations. And so it sets up this expectation that somehow, some way, I can live life and be absolutely perfect. Only problem is, once you find out you're not perfect, then it ruins the rest of your life. 
Once you grow up and figure out you can't be 40 years old and eat like you're 13, you've ruined your temple. I just need to figure out and figure out how to be healthy and clean. This is going to be great. Those are the expectations that man puts on because they don't understand who God is. What God, what Jesus was revealing in God is not that I can do signs, wonders, and miracles. What Jesus is revealing is there is something available to you that wasn't even available to Moses. That there's something that's available to you that wasn't available to Jacob. It was shown to Jacob so that he could see and have greater expectation. You're believing for God to send you a check to meet your needs. And God is standing above an open heaven saying, I am sending angels and up and down constantly to you. You're believing God for an answer to your prayer, one prayer, and what he wants is a relationship of completely transforming who you are. What you want is your mind to stop racing and to stop having these terrible thoughts. And he says, I have given you the mind of Christ. And what's the mind of Christ? It's the one who is the deliverer. It is the one who is the restorer. I have given you the mind, the anointed one that breaks every chain. And you want to keep thinking these thoughts? You're asking for the wrong thing. You have the wrong expectation. I have opened heaven, and now you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. I don't really know how to explain it any different than that. It's just words. It's just me taking an English language and transforming things that God has revealed in his word that are life and truth and trying to tell you where you are that your life can be different. Transformed, new that probably your expectations are too low. Pull yourself up by the bootstraps. That, that, thank you. Dad just told you that. He whispered and said, hey, tell him, bootstraps. You're like an old Missouri mule eating notes out of a stovepipe. That's what my dad would say. Sitting around so low, you could, you're so low, you could sit on a paper and swing your feet. That's what my dad would say. But I tell you one thing, my dad could stand there at the open heaven. He would say this, it's better than you thought. There's more than what you're living. You're believing too small. Jesus, standing in front of you. Amongst all your, you think, God, you could do that? You think maybe he's standing in front of you saying, you're impressed by that? You're impressed by that little miracle, that little answer, that little bit of your life. Your expectation is too small. Stick around. I'll show you. I'll show you the house of God. And it's in you. Angels ascending and descending. And we go from Jesus giving the pattern. He is the house of God. And we go, and this is how dumb we are. We're like, hey, that's Jesus though. He's the house of God and Jesus is in heaven. So no, you know, he's, he's up there. We'd forget that Jesus paved the way for us to follow in his footsteps so that we could be the house of God. We applaud. Jesus is so great. But you know what he's doing now? He's sitting in heaven. He's not on the earth. So he doesn't have to be the house of God on earth. You know what he gets to be? 
the ladder. Jesus, you provided a way for me. I'm not worthy to go to heaven. It's cool, I'm the ladder. How are the angels even going to... I'm the ladder. I don't have access. Yeah, I'm, I'm the ladder. Hebrews, he says, you can walk boldly into the throne of God. How do you think you do that? Jesus, the ladder. I'm not good enough. I'm imperfect. I got all this sin. He goes, yeah, it's cool. I'm the ladder. I don't even know how to start. Just one rung at a time. I'm the ladder. Just take a page from the book and read it. Find out Jesus is the ladder. He gives you access to something that's so supernatural. It's wonderful. So as I was saying, I can't explain it any better than that. I can't make you believe it. I can't make you understand it. All you can do is stick around. And just look with your expectation. That every time there's an issue, a problem in your life, you just look up and go, what you got for this? I'm worried today. God, what you got for this? I'm thinking there's more than what I've been living like. What you got for this? My kids, Jesus, oh Lord. What you got for this? He says, come on up. On Jesus the ladder. And you'll see all of heaven open up. Up and down. It's an open freeway. It's an open heaven. It doesn't have to be opened up. You know, we, we say prayers like this. It's in the Old Testament. Oh God, rend the heavens. Open the heavens. And I think Jesus is just like, too late, bro. Come, Lord Jesus. Greater measure in our life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? It just baffles me when I think about heaven and his glory and all that's up there and all that's available. My expectations are wrapped up in a little amusement park experience with somebody that I know that I can't sleep about. I'm so excited about. It's like just, it's so minuscule compared to what it actually could be. And your life is so minuscule compared to what God has designed for you. Your relationships are suffering so much. They're living below the standard of what God says they can be. Paul comes along and says, I can do, that God can do exceeding abundantly. Above all that you can ask, think, or imagine, according to the power that's at work in you. He's talking about the glory of God at work in your life. He's talking about a fire by night flying to the heavens, angels ascending and descending, and I wish I could show you that. But you just have to live it. take a minute, I'm going to ask God to come in and reveal himself to you. To show you. That as you stick around, so to speak, God will show you 
and open heaven. Heavenly Father, we know that you paid a great price for your affection, your heart, your attention to be towards us in a new way. Jesus, thank you for paving the way, becoming the ladder by which all of heaven comes to our life. Holy Spirit, thanks for being close and being obedient, teaching us all things, guiding us, moving towards a closer relationship with God. Holy Spirit, come into this place. Overwhelm your people with the glory of God. Let us feel tangibly your presence. Speak to hearts and minds. Do greater than we ever thought imaginable right now in this place. In Jesus' name. Just remain where you are. Just rest in the presence of God for a minute. Take some time. stand, that's okay. Some of you want to kneel, that's okay. Some of you want to lift your hands, that's okay. There's no right or wrong way, it's just responding to God in a new way. Hallelujah, Jesus. That's Him. That's him. Jesus, Jesus. For some of you, he's reassuring you because your doubt is running over your mind just day and night. He's reassuring you of who he is. You're storing your confidence in him. God is taking broken hearts and binding them back together in greater fashion than they ever were before. He's putting his touch, the light of life, into places that were so dark and shattered. Hallelujah. God says, walk out of that prison. You've been sitting in a jail cell for too long. The door is open and you're free. Walk out of it.
really quickly before we go, I could stay here all day. So, but I want you to know that it's not about this moment and this here. It is a defining moment. It's the heavens have opened up over you. And hopefully, you're more aware of it. That song, Holy Spirit, it's like the whole section is like, let us become more aware of your presence. When you go home, you got presence on you. When you're interacting with your spouse, you got the presence of God on you. When you're at work and everything is going crazy, you have the presence of God. Open heaven, raining down. Jesus is your ladder. So what is changing is not necessarily God because he's always been the same. What's changing is your expectation. And it's not stupid to expect great things from God. And for your life, you got to walk in every single day with a declaration of independence over your life that says, I'm God's, I'm restored, I'm renewed. You have to raise your level of expectation. Heavenly Father, we thank you for renewed expectations. We thank you for the grace of God, the glory of God over our life. I pray that this week would be a, a week of signs, wonders, and miracles. That the glory of God would rain down on it. We experience, experience a new life. Because of you, it's always been there. It's just us sticking around a little bit. In Jesus' name, do phenomenal things in our life. Heal our families. Restore relationships. Renew our minds. Jesus' name, we love you. We love you. We follow you. We give you our lives. Transform us in your presence. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, give God a big praise and you may be seated.